Welcome to a, a very special episode of The Punt. So it's exactly a year ago since I reached out to you boys and said, hey, let's go and like sit on the couch at the den and have a chat and see what happens. And I got a friend to film it at the end. He said, oh, let's put on your YouTube channel. I was like, we don't have a YouTube channel. He's like, well, what were you planning to do with this? I don't know. So we did get a YouTube channel and then we put that podcast up. People loved it and then we've obviously made a lot of great podcasts since then. So it's been a great year, but I think that it's important every year we get you boys in who started it all for us and have a chat. People love hearing from you. It's still the most popular podcast. Don't know whether it's because we've got a big audience and then I've decimated <laughs> it over time. A lot of betting being done in that year. A lot of betting being done, a lot of betting in front of us. Um, I reached out to all of you guys out there in internet world and you gave us a lot of great questions and topics to talk about via the den and via Twitter or X. So we have great structure to the show. I'm not really going to read read the questions out. I've kind of divided things up and tried to have a whole list of topics where everyone gets their queries, questions and um, ideas answered. Mm. So with that out of the way, to get us going and get our serious heads on, I might start with you, Dreamtown, and I'll ask all of you this, but in broad strokes, what are the sort of the principles and processes that you've had over the years that have led you to, to have success on the punt? Um. Oh, look, experience, I think. Like like most people at home, I was just a young, keen mug punter. So um, I sort of always had a – even I remember being like a 18-year-old placing my first bet, I always used to like write down my bets and see how I was going. So mm-hmm. that was probably something that uh, was a process that I started and um, I guess we'll talk about that later. So, But, yeah, like writing down your bets and analysing yourself um, – that's sort of like one of the key things I think to being a successful punter. Like, get rid of all ego. Get rid of like, oh, that. Get rid of that mindset that the jockey was slaughtered. It like mm-hmm. should own it. Like maybe you didn't think mm. what might have happened. So just getting rid of your ego, and just really like judging yourself and sort of laying everything out bare. I think is like a great starting point for the punt. But obviously after that watching a lot of races, watching horse characteristics. Um, And then as I sort of evolved to become sort of like a professional, like understanding the market and what other punters look for and what the syndicates do and when's the right time to bet. So, Mm. I mean, to keep it as simple as possible, that's just the evolution of me from, a, I guess, an 18-year-old to a 40-year-old now. (laughs) (laughs) Unreal. Great response. It does fly. (laughs) Dano, you've been at the top of the game a long time. What are your processes and principles? Look, I mean, racing's so vast, you can take so many different approaches to the form, right? So people will find their own path to doing that and the three of us even would do it quite differently. And probably, you know, we say two-thirds of it's sort of non-form related stuff, so it's all about how you manage yourself and things like that. Mm. So I'd say, like, the three biggest things are discipline in in all aspects of the game, uh, patience, because it doesn't matter how good you are or how much work you do, there'll be times when you just cast and you just can't find a winner, you're just losing. You need to be mm. able to manage yourself through that or you'll never make it sort of long-term. Mm. You'll just go around in circles or up and down in the one spot. And probably the last and most important thing is effort. Like, I mean, it, the game's hard. Like, you've got to put the work in. Mm. Whatever your approach is, whether you're modelling, whether you're doing detailed form or, or something else, you have to put the effort in. There's no shortcuts mm. to this game. Uh, you can be talented, have as much of an idea as you want, um, the game's easy when you're winning and everyone doesn't matter. Even if you're not a winning punter, you'll go through periods where you're flying uh, and that can fool you into thinking that you've got the game beat. But you mm. really need to, you know, maintain your focus and your discipline on effort because talent and your knowledge will only take you so far. But that mm. work ethic and ability to work hard, you know, keep turning up when things aren't going well, keep putting the effort in and sort of fight back is what I've found made the big difference. Um, like in NRL parlances sort of thing about Reese Walsh right like all the talent in the world but at mm-hmm. key times of the game just especially that last play just no effort just mm. like slackened off and ended up costing them the grand final so mm. um yeah so I think that's one thing I'd really stress to people is that to make it over the long term you need to have a good work ethic whatever your approach is and, and just keep turning up and putting in the effort uh, especially when things aren't going well the harder you work the luckier you get yeah, pretty much, yeah. It's one of the yeah. great sayings, yeah. And, I mean, you have to be willing to do that when things aren't going well. Everyone can do it when you're flying. The game is really fun. Mm. Um, but I think what separates people um, is the ability to still love the game that much and, and have the belief that you're still willing to turn up and do that when things aren't going well for you. Mm. 
Kings are? Process and principles? Uh, three things I'm fanatical about. Number, the first one is odds. Mm-hmm. Always trying to get top odds, searching wherever I can, high and low to get, uh, get the best price about whatever my selection is, mm-hmm. whether it be sport or racing. Uh, second one is improving, always trying to improve, always be better, always looking forward. Never, whether I'm having a good run or a bad run, always trying to improve the model, mm-hmm. looking for new data, looking, trying, testing new things, new ways of doing the form, always trying to be one step ahead. And uh, the third thing is just betting. Betting, by that, I mean I love betting. Mm. I love the whole processes involved. I love watching it. I love being a part of it. And you've got to love it. If you don't try and do this for a living, living unless you live and breathe it. Mm. I think about twenty four seven. Always trying to just come up with something new, or just have a bet on it just for an interest. A lot of the time, whether it be sport, because I just enjoy the thrill of it, really. Mm. Mm. So unless you are really passionate about it, don't even, sort of don't even try. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Why don't we kick off talking about ratings? And you're probably the best to answer this, Dan. A lot of people always want to talk about ratings. Mm. Once again, in broad strokes, what are the key factors that go into making a good rating for a horse? And also to put a second part to the question, does a race map play a part in ratings? Yeah, I saw that question that was posed. I guess people often think about ratings in two senses, right? There's a past rating, like a performance rating, um, which measures... The, the past run, that's a lot of what I do. And then I think maybe this particular question was looking at like a rating for today's race, like how do you line up the horses and give a figure for today's race and does the map sort of play a role? Uh, in terms of past ratings, measuring performances, I, I spend a huge amount of time doing that. It's my main thing. Um, looking at, you know, time sectionals, quality of field, margin spread, weights carried, you know, a whole range of factors sort of go into that model along with a bit of, uh, bit of your own sort of oversight and judgment that's sort of, combination of art and science Mm -hmm. uh, I guess Uh, in terms of you know for the current day like rating horses or assessing horses for the current race yeah maps certainly plays a role Um, I don't take a numerical or or model or you know like uh, what's the right word like calculated approach to it I'm sort of more intuitive when I do the form so I'm assessing it using ratings I'm trying to get a feel for the race and map definitely does play a role in that mm. um, but look that's only one approach you can take to, to sort of doing the form there's plenty of other ways as well yeah Matt have ratings formed a big part of you improving your punting yeah um, I think I think what they really do is they sort of tell you where the market is going I think that's like yeah like a if your horse has run the top three rating number which most there's there's three or four databases out there they're all going to be very similar. So that horse is the fastest, is running the last three starts, the fastest. You just know that horse is going to be the favourite. Mm. So if you're just going off the Race New South Wales website, for example, and doing your form that way, you, even though you may be good enough to go, I know that strong form, without being able to see it, you don't, you don't know how to sort of price it up. Mm. So to me, the rating just sort of helps sort out where the field's going to be from a price point of view. And then you sort of add your herbs and spices to it to sort of work out where the value is. So that's mm. how I look at it. And people, a lot of people want to know what are some good ratings programs and software that you can buy. I mean, you're pretty probably a pretty good person to answer that question. Yeah, well, Dan's got uh, GTX, obviously. Yeah. Um, that's a very popular one, uh, one of the better ones out there. Uh, there's uh, Puntiform, which has a sectional sort of focus and ratings to win, and there might be a couple of others. But um, mm. as I said... To anyone that's asked me before, I, I really think if you want to become a winning punter, you need one of them, I think, because it just it saves you so much time and it just shapes the market and it, it shows you what all the big players who move the markets are looking at. So It would cost a lot to purchase the GTX yeah. database. It would yes. cost a heap to develop. It does, yes, it would have for sure. Yeah, all of the providers, whether it's you know, my group, ratings to win, mm. punting form, the other guys out there spend – you know, huge amounts of money on staff and resources and time, yeah. mm. building this information, the intelligence that goes into calculating and presenting it to the market. So as a consumer of that, you're getting the benefit yeah. of that insight and it's really a task beyond just one person unless you are going to employ your own staff and programmers and things like that, like, like King's does. So mm. uh, as Matt said, it saves you a huge amount of time uh, in doing the form. It gives you a level of clarity that you can't get just looking at, bare form on websites or something like that 
Um, and that in turn allows you to be more focused on the things where you can add value, like, mm. like you were saying, Matt, like the herbs and spices and, mm. and things like that. If, if multiple people have got the numbers, let's call them that, then your edge is the context you can put those into, how you can interpret it, how mm. you can add value with some mm. of your own intuition and judgment, whether it's picking the right races, whether it's watching a replay and, and overlaying things on top of that. Um, but look, you know, they, they obviously do come at a cost because it's expensive to, to yeah. maintain those it's, products. It's a, yeah. it's, a, it's a cost you need to have. Like you got to mm. spend four to 10,000 sort of a year, I reckon, just to, that's what I sort of, with my combination of all my subscriptions, that just sort of gives you a base to work off. And it's mm. if you use it every day or every second day or whatever you want to do, yeah. you'll get that money back for mm. sure. Yeah. So. And that's the thing. People look at it as a cost, but you've got to look at how much better off can that make your game. So if it costs mm. you 3500 or something to use one of the provider's products and you're going to stick with that, is your punning going to be 3500 or more better off a year than mm. if you've got mm. half an idea, I'd say yeah. definitely 100%. Yeah, like, um, It's like exercise. You can go get pretty fit running around the block, but if you want to get sort of better and bigger you want to spend some money get a gym membership or get a pt it's just quickly same. how many gym memberships have you got at the moment i've cut it down actually <laughs> i'm back to i'm back to two and a half basically. and you peaked at four right yeah but it's a long story <laughs> we're not talking about that today. <laughs> no, it's not okay cool well, i think that sort of covers ratings well enough I'm, i might move to you the king as we talk about a different topic so someone asked when do you guys start doing the form do you start doing it as soon as acceptances come about when do you start doing the form uh well the computer does the form basically and spits out the numbers the prices um and a few other metrics but it just comes down to when i get time to sort of look at that sometimes it might be half an hour before the first race sometimes for a saturday well since we've been doing the saturday set now i start doing it on a on a on a, on a thursday morning um so it just comes down to when i get time i bet seven days a week so there's only so many hours in the day so i've sort of got to get organized if i want to have some early bets so mm. it just depends so dan what about you for tomorrow's meeting at rose hill when did you i don't even know do you is all your form completely automated no, or do you no, do a no. lot of manual no, assessment no, no, as well no. so if i'm doing form for like the main meetings like on a saturday i'm doing what most people consider to be form study and particularly for sydney and melbourne sort of pricing them up um, for other meetings, I take a sort of slightly different approach. But look, I'm that busy week to week doing a whole range of things, including looking at you know the races every day. Yeah. Um, that yeah, I'm nowhere near ready to start doing Wednesday form on a uh, Saturday form on a Wednesday afternoon. So it'd normally yeah. be sort of late Thursday by the time I get to, to Saturday, um, yep. where I start looking at you know similar previous meetings, how the track might play, and then you go into your process from there. Yeah. Matt, when do you start looking at? Um, well, the the sort of later, the older I get, the later I look. So I think the evolution is pretty common with most punters. Like a lot of times when I was sort of starting out, I'd be waiting for those Wednesday acceptances and starting mm -hmm. to get my fields ready for Saturday. But as time goes on and experience, um, I've got experience under my belt and the results, like I make more money on Tuesday and Thursday than I do on Saturday sometimes. So... Yeah, like for me, I just keep pushing Saturday back until yeah. the end. And now I've joined um, the boys and working with a bunch of punters. That that means I can just let Saturday come Saturday morning. I worry yeah. about it. Yeah. But um, yeah, a lot of people, the majority of punters out there are going to want to do the form early. And that's a good way to get your eye in and get a feel for racing and the form. But I think as you get more experience, you probably realise that you know, if you become good, you can't get much money on if you're betting early and stuff like that. So you're just naturally better. Do you worry if you miss a price? You look at it, it's gone eight dollars into sort of three fifty, and you've, you does that worry you? Uh, not really. Like it's it's frustrating a little bit, but I know that the people that bet early probably aren't betting like Thursday, Tuesday, Friday, like I am. So yeah. I have to just re remind myself that um i've missed a little bit here but i've also i'm going to gain a lot by not by not mm. i mean watching those prices and waiting for the prices to come out is essentially a job in itself yeah. and um a punter can't be over across everything people mm. stretch themselves too far and um yeah i've definitely pushed my stuff back later. a lot can drift too people just yeah. focus on the firmers a lot absolutely you only do. think of the firmers you don't think about the one that you got four dollars yeah. that you might have taken 280. yeah 100 percent. and they love the bookies like if someone half smart bets, they'll turn it off really quick these days. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
it does present more opportunity, I think, later. And all our data and stats say you can still make good money betting late. So mm. let's just do it. <laughs> Dano, yeah. what about the idea that big fields are better to bet in than small fields or the vice versa? Do you think there's any merit in an argument either way? Look, I don't think you restrict your action to one or another just based on that theory alone. They just just different profiles, right? So big fields are probably a little bit easier to find value because there's more fat in the market. So there's more $12 shots that should be 23 or 26. There's more $15 shots that should be 30s and, and so on it goes. In a small field, there's less runners, you know, for the market to, to price incorrectly, especially with the sort of long shot bias. Um, but obviously in the bigger fields, your strike rate's lower. So yeah. um, prices are longer, you just got a little bit more variance. So it just really comes down to just playing each race on its merits. So I wouldn't, I personally don't steer away from small fields for any particular reason or big fields. I just take each race on its merits and if there's an opportunity that feels right, you just yeah. play it. Yeah. Great answer. Sectional times. Everyone talks about sectional times these days. I might start with you, the king. Exceptional mm. How important are sectionals? <laughs> You've got many sayings. Sectional domination, <laughs> exceptional sectionals. Yeah, how important are they? Oh, it's just another factor in the, in the, in the mixing pot, really. Um, they are important because they sort of come to light the last maybe 10 years or so. Would it be when sectional data came out about 10 years ago sort of thing? Yeah, like in terms of more publicly available, I mean, there was going back a period where there was only one provider of the individual sectionals and you had to pay a lot of money to get mm -hmm. them and they were a big advantage. But then there's been providers sort of coming to the market, which has opened it up for everyone. Mm. Um, they certainly, uh, they dominate now all the racing shows. Very true. Everyone's talking about them. Mm. Um, benchmark sectionals essentially as well. So... Um, you know, my, oh, this horse ran minus six or minus eight. Like a mm. lot of punters who are semi-sophisticated will sort of focus on that and you'll notice those horses get backed early and stuff like that. So they are a huge factor, as Dan said. They're the, sort of the new sexy thing in the market at the moment. Mm. I've found the last uh, the last 200 is the most sort of important that, I, that I've found. The early sectionals are good too for mapping. Mm. Yep. Um, have you focused on any particular range, Dan? Um, look, I mean, I've done all the research and all the different figures, you know, you've got years and years of individual sectional measures and things like that, and you cut and slice and analyse to sort of try and find some little angles. I mean, th there's nothing there that's revolutionary or groundbreaking. Mm -hmm. it's, it's as King said, I mean, it's one factor that you can add uh, into your analysis that either massages a horse one way or another and can shape your betting. Um, mm. There's a lot of takes I see whether it's in the media or on race analysis social media about horses sectionals and things like that that are wrong to be honest um, I think people focus a lot on the fastest sectionals without any thought about what should a horse of that talent actually run so if you're a horse that's got a reasonable degree of talent yeah the context of yeah the you run. get back in the field and do no work you're entitled to be zipping home mm. in the fastest sectionals of the race or the fastest sectionals of the day or something mm. like that the the key for the average person using sectionals, I think, is to look for horses that do things that are better than what their perceived level of talent is. So mm. by then you're comparing to other horses in the race. So you might see a horse unsuited by the speed running home fast. Um, if it runs the best sectionals in the race, who are the horses closest to it? What's their level of talent? How does that horse sort of compare um, if, if the market sort of thought that horse was inferior, then, yeah, maybe that's a positive run. But there's a lot of false positives that people associate good horses running fast sectionals. That's what they yeah. do. It doesn't yeah. necessarily enhance their, the merit of their run or their reputation. They're just doing what they should have done in that scenario. So it's mm. really important to, to sort of keep in mind. Uh, I found uh, matching mapping up with sectionals as well. Something's going to get a good good run, and you know it can do a fast sectional yeah. time. Mm. Then they, they they marry up really well together. Yeah, mm -hmm. but it is the it's the sexy topic at the moment, mm. and people, I'd say, like confuse themselves or sort of you know think they're looking at a lot of data mm. and figures and quote a lot of numbers, thinking that sounds sophisticated and it's effective, mm. and it's not always the, the yeah. Case. I mean, yeah. it's like if you run the best last sectional, like you're going to be. Someone's going to find it, so you have yeah. to take a discount to back that horse. Yeah, yeah. What we want to do is find the profit, so the profit's not in the obvious. Yeah, it's all about the price in the end, isn't it? It is Kingsley. Yeah, mm. section yeah. like like time ratings back back in the eighties or whatever. That yep. uh, if you have a first to have the time ratings, well, you made a mm. heap of money. But now it's sort of the, the right price. The horse is 
two fifty now that used to be three dollars and it might be a two sixty chance. Yeah. Hundred percent. It's all about yeah. what price you're taking in the end. Yeah. So that's a great segue. Let's talk about pricing. I'll put this sort of statement out there. Is everybody watching this podcast wasting their time trying to price horses because it's just so hard to do it and do it correctly? No, I don't think so. No, if you're everyone's got their own special talent. It's just there's a lot of people out there that can price horses well and they, they, there are a lot of mistakes in the early markets and you don't have to be 100% accurate. If you've priced something $2.60, it doesn't mean that you're going to take two eighty. Sometimes they put up 4 or $5 sort mm. of thing. So there's a lot of mistakes to out there in the market, but it just comes down to what, what works for you. What do you guys think? Yeah, I, I agree. It's the what works for you principle. If you have the skill to price successfully, then go for it. Um, but if you're starting out, which 90 nine percent of the people watching this video are sort of in that sort of um non-professional bracket like yeah i wouldn't be pricing up to the dollar but yeah. definitely work on it as a skill and maybe just pick one or two horses per day and start to practice i think that horse is going to start longer i think it's going to start shorter because of this and it's just about building your skills up as a punter um yeah i mean like we because um when you bet everywhere and across different states, you don't have time to price up every horse. So, mm. but if you want to focus and do a couple of races a day or one meeting a day, yeah, do it for sure. But yeah, I have some pretty strong thoughts on the topic, which I've written about before. I mean, I think it's the biggest myth in racing that we were all taught, like our age, sort mm. of coming through, that you've got to price your horses and back your overlays. Yeah. Mm. Um, the reality is that the vast majority of people don't have the knowledge or skills to accurately price and use that as the anchor to do their betting. Mm -hmm. Like the idea of price this $5 and it's only 480, so I'm not gonna bet is just absurd, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, same thing that I've priced at $5 and it's $6, so I'm gonna bet. I mean, it's, you know, if if that's what's driving your betting, um, then you really wanna be in like the top, the, you know, top 0.1 or 0.2% of people that have the talent to, to price races accurately. Mm. Um, I think you're, there's nothing wrong with pricing and, and trying to have an idea of what the right price is and, and honing your skills, as Matt said, but it shouldn't be the fundamental driver of your betting decisions. Like in my experience, good bets should be about looking at a race, having a feel for a race, whether it's from your model or from your own form, having an idea on price and just making bets that feel right based yeah. on everything. Because when you're pricing horses, you're making all sorts of assumptions, not only about your horse, but about all the other horses in the mm. race, right? So if you price something 280 and then it's 350, does that mean you're getting a huge overlay? Or have you have you made two or mm. three assumptions that the market might be telling you you're mm. a little bit out? Mm. So if you're out on your horse, then all the other horses you've priced are out as well. So yeah. how can you take sort of concrete judgments um, with that much I uncertainty? I think blending the, the public market is a necessity if you are pricing. Yeah. That'd be my advice to people. If you want to work on pricing, then start with the public market or the yep. early market. Look at the favourite. Get your idea on the favourite. Think, I like it more than the market or I like it less. Market a price and then work down and start mm. to shape your market from that way. Use the intelligence of the people that have put the prices together and some of the punters that have already played to sort of shape the market. Yeah, and that, because, that'll improve your skill as well. Because the bookies um, are essentially using a generic rating system to come up with their markets. Because they're, I mean, they're, the fields come out uh, <coughs> Wednesday morning for Saturday's races. The bookies will have their prices up three or four hours later. They're just spitting them out off a computer model, so yeah. off rating. So, um, yeah, as Dan said, just sort of like, just get a feel for it and, um, yeah, get a feel for it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> people do their prices and you say you, if you're a price punter, you know, you're taking 330 about things you priced at 250 and all this sort of thing, you think, oh, that's great value. I mean, if your prices were, were mm. accurate, then you should be making 20 30% profit on turnover. Mm. Like no yeah. one's making that, right, yeah. especially for any sort of volume. So... As King said, that's where you, you start to factor in the market. And I believe for mm. the average person, starting with the market and massaging that price and getting your prices back to 100% is probably a good way to go. Mm. Um, but look, in terms of the <coughs> tools and techniques and ways you can go about winning on the punt, in my opinion, for the average person, unless you're highly sophisticated and knowledgeable, like actually pricing up horses is so far down the list of things mm. you could do to help your game that you mm. don't need to worry about <laughs> I it. I agree. Um, I only price Sydney and mm. Melbourne on Saturdays. I don't mm. price any other races, midweek, mm -hmm. anything. Yeah. I heard yeah. someone say once, like instead of pricing them, just start off by putting them in order. Yep. So that's mm. a great starting yeah. point. 
Well, that's mm. the favourite. That's probably the second pick. Mm. Yep. So I'd recommend that strategy. Yep. Just bring your mic a tiny bit closer. Thank you. But let's move to the the funnest part of the great game, which is putting the money on. Mm. Um, is it fun? <laughs> it used well. to be fun. Ask, King, ask Kingsley. <laughs> it used to be fun. So everyone wants to talk about staking. Um, one of the first questions was, what percentage of your bankroll do you spend on a race? It's going to vary. You're probably uh, going to start like this across the room. Yeah, mm. I'll just talk about what I, what, what I do. I, I put limits, spend limits on races. Um, I bet to win a certain amount and I have a maximum bet as well. So I might bet to win, let's call it 5,000 for example. I'm backing horses to win 5,000 with a maximum bet of 2,500 and my spend for the race might be 4,000. Mm. So I'm putting limit limits on them and that, that's just how I do it. Yeah, Dano? Um, yeah, generally like a you know an approach where you're betting to collect the same amount on, on each bet, uh, depending on the prices of horses you're backing will, will sort of dictate your average stake. Uh, in my opinion and, and sort of research and just years of experience, sort of somewhere between four and five percent of your bank's a good idea. So if your bank's ten thousand, you're betting to collect five hundred. Yes. Uh, in my experience, that keeps your average stake at a level that allows you to endure a losing run and still keep a reasonable amount of capital and sort of confidence to to fight back. Um, because as you know, we've discussed it plenty of times before. The the biggest danger most punters face is just overstaking. Mm. Um, mm. It's, it's really important to to keep that in check. Uh, that's a good question for you, Dream Team. What bankroll would someone need to go pro? Mm. I think Kingsley addressed it um, last year. He's yeah. You always have to sort of start with small and just try to sort of have a bit of luck to go. But to go pro, mm. I reckon you'd be well three, four hundred thousand something like you need. Oh no, not. I mean, a hundred might be okay, but just it if depends. If you had a hundred and you're going pro, that's fucking terrifying. Oh, it is mm. terrifying, but oh, like everyone oh, has a. Depends Everyone. on your living costs, right? Yeah, well, do you have, yeah, do you have what, yeah. what responsibilities well, do you have? Most most young men who want to go pro have pretty high living costs because they're... <laughs> well, <laughs> they're a, lot of people, a lot of people do go pro with 100,000, but they don't yeah, end up pro. They yeah. end up... It comes down to what you can turn over, basically, yeah, yeah. a lot That's of the, the time. Like, if if you're turning over 100,000 for the week and you're probably going to make, say, let's call it 5%, there's your five, five grand for the mm. week. So you, mm. you've got to work out how much you can turn over. It's no good having a bank of... 500,000, but you're only turning over 5,000 for the week, you're not going to make enough. So you've got to keep it realistic. Mm. I think 100,000 is enough. Mm. But I would, I, when I was uh, in my 20s, I kept working. I'd mm. bet mm. and I'd work at night. Yep. Mm. Yeah. So you've got to keep the money coming in because you never know when you're going to hit, yeah. the, hit the skids and then you need that income, whether it's even if it's 500 bucks a week, 1,000 a week, keep it coming in, just keep working. Mm. Yeah. Work it's it punting, but keep getting, yep. you need an income as well. Yeah. I think yeah. it depends on your living costs. I'd say if you've got no other source of income, I reckon you need three times your annual living cost to go pro, mm. uh-huh. which allows you to sort of bet freely, endure losing runs, but you've yes. also got money there to pay your expenses because yeah. nothing will kill you more than having a losing run and still having mm. the money going out because mm. you're paying mortgages, yeah. you know, kids, mm. whatever. Um, if you have got other income coming in, I think somewhere around sort of one to one and a half times your annual living cost is probably a good bank to start with if you want to take a really mm. professional approach and see if you can make money to really add some value mm. to your life type of thing and, and perhaps open up the opportunity to, to do it on a more full-time basis. So mm. if it costs you 100000 a year to live, then that's probably what you want to start mm. with if you've already got those living costs covered. If not, then you probably yeah. need something like 300 I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. What drawdown on your bank would you allow before you reevaluate <laughs> your approach? <laughs> <laughs> it gets crazy. Like I've been through it. Um, you can lose 50% mm-hmm. like that. 100%. Like, yeah. It just goes. I've seen it. Yeah, it's, sure. it's depressing and it's sad yeah. and you think you're gone. Um, and that's what separates a lot of people. Um, but, yeah, like just you need to really pitch, picture the fact that you've knocked off half of it and then you need to consider where you'll be mentally mm-hmm. and financially. <laughs> so, um, yeah, be prepared. Like ratings to win, I don't know if GTX helps you, but ratings to win has a function where – you enter all your bets in um, from a, your, a spreadsheet and it sort of tells you how you went through the year, what was your lowest point and what was your highest point and it tells you a drawdown number and it's bloody scary. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I've just yeah. been through an interesting period myself. 
Yeah, there's no doubt you can go through runs where you drop, even if you're staking reasonably conservatively, where you're dropping 40, 50% of your bank, yeah. like, and you're not doing anything wrong. You're betting with discipline, you're doing all the work. It's just how the game goes. And when you bet with enough volume of bets each year for X number of years, everyone will will experience it. So, uh, But in terms of changing your strategy, I don't know if there's any sort of fixed number. I think... Um, as Matt might have said, you know, like having those records and things like that. One of the things I do in losing runs is you're always going back and reviewing. I look where I've had similar losing runs in the past. Mm. I look at, you know, you review some of your decisions and, and see if there's some things you can improve. So it's kind of like an evolutionary process. I've never sort of, you know, never say, oh, if I get to a point, I'm going to change what I do. But just as you go along, if you're doing it tough, your own nature makes you sort of look at things, review things. Um, I've always got one or more projects on the go with data or information, like Kings was saying, just always striving to get yeah. smarter and improve things. Mm. Uh, and sometimes you, you find a couple of little nuggets that you might incorporate mm. into your game. Um, but the biggest problem most hobby punters make is they go through two or three or four bad weeks and they think what they're doing is trash yeah, it doesn't and work. then they change, change to something too much. new. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. If you get in that cycle where you're just constantly looking for a new approach, the next shiny thing, the next perfect strategy, you'll never ever mm. sort of elevate to what your goals are because is, you're yeah. always going to have Which is why record keeping is just so important. Like mm. if you've seen yourself go through the bad period before but it does pick up, that mm. gives you confidence to keep yeah. going. Mm. For sure. Moving along, Kings, what do you think about backing multiple horses in a race? Uh, yeah, as long as you're getting the right price about them all, there's nothing wrong with it. I, I cut, I cut, <clears throat> I cut off at about sixty percent. If I'm taking over sixty percent of the field, in terms of betting percentage, then I'll, um, then I'll cut back. I won't go over sixty. So no, there's nothing wrong with backing, backing multiple horses as long as you're getting the right odds. Mm. And I roll to the next question. I think you're most qualified to answer this one. What do you? Th- do you allow late market move to sway your opinion? I mean, you're in the marketplace so much. Yeah, I am. Um, no, it doesn't sway my opinion, but it does sway my bet size. And the main reason that it sways my bet size is because I'm backing those horses on Betfair, mm-hmm. which the, the the big drifters generally are the top prices on Betfair at the end, mm-hmm. and I can't get as much money on them because the volume's just not there. Mm-hmm. So. If I could get the volume on them at Betfair SP um, without it affecting my price, then I would have just as much on. Uh, but I'm betting to win a certain amount. So if it's $5 out to $10 and I'm betting to win, say, 30000 for example, I'm only putting 3300 on mm. instead of 7500 So mm. I'm reducing my bet size on the bigger drifters. Mm. But it's, I still, I, I'd still back them. Yeah. You can't be – I do analysis on, on drifters and firmers and everything else – it comes down to getting the right price at the end. I, I do better backing blowers, um, Betfair SP, than I do backing firmers, my horses that I'm backing firmers, Betfair SP. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm not worried about it. But you don't want to be taking the horse that's $5 to $10. You don't want to be taking six or seven. Mm. You want to be on at the 10. How much attention do you pay to market movies, Dan? Or is all your betting done well and truly before jump time? Um, a mixture. Uh, I think... There's some bets you have that you're really confident in the race and you just like the horse or horses you're backing. So it's really about getting the best price. Um, There are some races where you think trading could influence your opinion, especially if there's a lot of first-up horses and things like that. Mm. You like something first up, but you think, I just want to see a little bit of market support and it's $4.80 out to $8.50, then I probably wouldn't bet, right, Mm. because I'm sort of relying on that to give me a lead. Um, But as a rule for the vast majority of bets, um, I'm not too concerned about drifts um, because there's and one of my key principles of sort of betting is like minimizing minimizing regret uh, and there's nothing worse than really liking a horse but then you stay out because you get the you know you get worried about a drift and then the horse mm. wins mm. but you're far better off just taking the swings and roundabouts yeah there are going to be times your horse drifts and it misses the start and etc cetera, etc cetera, and you come up with all sorts of theories about that um, but there'll be times that they win as well. And, and Drifters nowadays are just other people's opinions. Yeah. Yeah. It's not stable money or someone's on Betfair yeah. laying it for a lot who's, you know, connected with a stable or mm. anything. It's just, you know, computer teams differing opinions, which is fantastic. Mm. It's mm. not yep. – it's nothing to be scared of. And there's so much percentage in the early markets nowadays that most horses Most things drift. are going to drift. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah totally. Um, yeah. If you sort of think that it's going to drift because of certain reasons that you think – the other computer guys got it wrong. Don't don't be um, don't be scared off for sure. 
got a question for you, Dream Team. What do you think about yard watches? As a lot of us don't go to the races anymore, yeah. the proliferation of yard watches has risen. Yes, Glenn Pollitt leading the way in Sydney. Leading the way, the godfather of yard watching. Yeah, what do you what do you think about yard watching? Uh, it's interesting. Um, I've never let it sort of affect my sort of not recently like my betting, so I don't see much of it. I I sort of I subscribe to Glenn and I see what he's saying, but it does actually dictate the market a little bit late. Mm-hmm. Um, there's quite a few. Like for those who don't know, I think on course there's about two or three sort of teams who have syndic. So have people watching the watching the fields and marking it and sending it off on a cloud and big people are using the yard information. So mm. it does affect mm. things. Um, I got a message last week that a favourite uh, paraded terribly um, at Warwick Farm. I think on Monday it was three dollars out to five sixty, and um, that was purely from the yard. I think the horse got beaten in the nose. So, mm. but it does show an influential the yard is so yeah it's interesting I, I once again it's one of the subscriptions that i have i pay for because it does give you lots of information yeah king someone asked a question about on course betting do you mm. use it anymore i'll sort of make a statement and you can you make a statement well i mean on course is basically completely dead isn't it really like it's there's a small yeah i mean i think it's I've got a lot of friends who are on course bookies and I wish them all the best with it, Hope, but it seems like it's all but dead really. Yeah, They're all I, moving I, online anyway. I wouldn't know and I probably tend to agree with you because I don't send anyone out there anymore. I've got no one on track. Mm. So do I use on course bookies? No, I don't. Um, one of the main reasons why I don't use on course bookies anymore is because my the number of bets I'm having on Metro races has reduced down so much due to the higher percentage in the markets mm. um, that I sort of don't need them. It became the on-course bookies became a lot less competitive what, than what they used to be. Plus, my bets were reducing, so uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't bet with them anymore, unfortunately, I lo- mm. which is a shame. Mm. Yeah, a lot of them are moving online, which is good for them. So, mm. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't think the racetracks are really encouraging serious punters to the track anymore. Mm. Well, I remember is, speaking yeah. to like regulators seven, eight years ago, and they were like, "On-course bookies are a losing proposition for us. Like, it cost them." Yeah, cost them money to have them out there with the infrastructure. Yeah, it's a shame. Yeah, it's not good. They're not. Yeah, there'll, there'll always be a small place for them, but yeah, they're up against it these days because it's just so much easier and better to bet online and bet from home. You know, so. or yeah, like, when you're at the track, bet. Well, bet Gay, Gay Waterhouse did an article this morning that said it was ridiculous how expensive going to the races are mm. these days. So um, until they address that whole issue, mm. the poor old on-course bookies are going to suffer. Mm. Dan, I got a question for you. Um, mm. You know a lot of trainers and owners and stuff. Do you rely? Do you listen to what they say much to influence your betting? Or um, no, I mean that's probably the, the summary answer. Um, you do get some information you learn over time, which is more reliable than others. But I mean, if you take tips off trainers, jockeys, owners, mm. I mean that's a losing proposition, right? Um, you know, there is sometimes there's some help to it to know that. A trainer might believe that a horse has improved X amount. That's that's sometimes what I find valuable um, rather than a trainer saying, oh, this will win. I mean, they don't know. They're not form people. There's mm. some trainers around that are just noted touters and just got no idea, right? Mm. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean, you don't need it to win, let's put it that way. And in, in a lot of cases, it's probably more a hindrance than a help. So um, I don't think it's it's a key part of the game these days. There's not many people that I know that rely on that as as a core part of their winning strategy. I think it's mm-hmm. um, just as I said at the start, it's about taking ownership of your betting. Hundred percent. Like if you walk away at the end of the day, you've done you've done your your ass or whatever, and you've gone ah oh, that I got I followed this trainer mail, I followed this tip. Like you can't blame other people, so own it all. So just take it on board. At the end of the day, um, if you're hearing a um, like a slow for a horse, maybe it just means you back it later or something like mm-hmm. that. So, mm-hmm. yeah. mm-hmm. All right. So the last topic we're going to talk about is mindset. And we've sort of t- touched on a lot of things to do with mindset. But one mm. thing we haven't sort of talked about is the sophisticated punning isn't for everyone. And I'll pose a question to all of you. You've all got children. Would you want your sons or daughters to go through what you've been through for the last you know, couple of decades or more? Um, yeah, is it a life that you'd want them to have? Oh, if they're up for it, yeah. But I don't think it's What do they need to be up for it? What are the... They need to have a passion for, for, for gambling, for betting, mm. I think, which I touched on at the start. They could, 
they sort of need need to be up for the fight. Mm. I mean, it's mentally it's it's extremely tough to keep getting up and 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 and, and then going through those winning periods and those losing periods and. When you're starting off, especially if you've got kids, you don't know whether you've got enough money to sort of pay the school fees and all that sort of thing. So, it, as I've said, it's not for everyone. Some people just like getting a job, uh, earning their, you know, 1500 a week or whatever it may be. Mm. Um, me, I just love the challenge of it. Mm. But would I want my son to do it? Um, not straight away, no. He'd have mm. to – it's different nowadays though. It's, it used to be more about gambling. Now it's – if he was to get into it, I'd, I'd want him to go and do a sort of computer science degree and, and exploring AI options and all that sort of thing. It's more of an investment business nowadays than a, than a gambling business. But mm. I don't care what you want to call it. There's a lot of stresses involved in it. Mm. Um, yeah, uh, to answer your question, probably not, no. Mm. Dan, it just comes down to the individual person, like whether you love it. Like King said, you just got to love the game. I mm. mean, I from the day that I sort of got involved I just found that it clicked with me my mindset analytical mindset you know I used to spend every Saturday at the track even though I was betting like extremely small mm. um, and just grew to love it so much and the intellectual challenge with it um, that you know the money side once you start coming be good uh, becoming good at it so you just have to have that passion if someone's got the passion and you know some level of of uh, intellect to want to put in the work ethic and, and learn what it takes, then, yeah, why not? I mean, it's one of the great things, mm. like one of the great pursuits in life, just that constant challenge and, and satisfaction that comes and things like that. Um, but if you're not, you know, if you don't have that but you still enjoy the races, that's fine. Just take a more casual sort of hobby approach. Do the best you can, you know, bet with well within your means and just enjoy it because racing's still thrilling and everyone loves the thrill of backing yeah. a winner. Um, as long as you do it realistically, don't think that you're going to, you know, work your job and then open the newspaper or race net or punters on a Saturday and, and think that you're going to make 50000 a year betting because it's not going to happen, right? Mm. Just approach it with a realistic mindset. Um, but, yeah, if you've got the passion for it, you know, I think it is still for people these days, yeah. Yeah, stress, stress management, you have to really master that. Mm. Like you, A... I mean, everyone focuses on different price brackets. I know 80% of my bets lose. Um, yeah. And to be wrong, 80% of the time, people struggle to get their head around that. But, um, mm. yeah, like you can lose for weeks on end, months on end. But mm. um, that's what kills most people. So just removing ego and dealing with stress, that's the sort of the main two things that a punter needs to sort of um, – deal with and um but the lifestyle it's great like I, I love it i love not having a serious job and a nine to five and all that sort of thing but mm. um there's lots of negatives that go towards it like you, you can't you can't ever stop working there's no mm. holiday pay there's no sick pay and stuff like that so mm. it's just a, if you can get involved in it in like racing and like a lot of people are tipping on twitter and charging people for their tips it's a great way to get money coming in and just deal with that offset that stress of relying on the gambling dollar to sort of pay your next bill. Great words. Well, let's move to the state of the industry. My favourite topic. <laughs> you do love this. Let's talk about I'm going to insert and... myself into the conversation because <laughs> I'm qualified to speak now. So a lot of people talked about the taxation regime. Product fees have gone up a lot. Point of consumption tax has come in. The government get their GST. It's very expensive to be a punter these days. It's also very expensive to be a bookie. Mm. I'll make the statement and you guys can bounce off that. I don't have an issue with how high taxes have gone simply because we have probably the best industry in the world and to fund that industry, for want of a better term, the punters have to pay for it. We are paying for it. There's no doubt in my mind that we've reached the tipping point. They can't. The governments and the racing bodies can't keep taxing us anymore. If anything, I think we'll see a little bit of relief. But it's basically like if you can't make it in this environment, that's bad luck. You need to go and do and do something else. That's my opinion. What are you thinking? Oh, I think that I think that it's obviously there's a lot more percentage in the market, which it's obviously a lot harder when that is the case to win punting. You can still win punting, but you've got to be bloody good nowadays. There's not that many winning punters out there left, but. It's not about it's not about bookmakers. It's not about professional punters. It's about the recreational punter. The recreational punter is the one that funds this whole industry, mm -hmm. and the recreational punter is the one that every the racing bodies have to keep happy. Mm. Without the recreational punter, none of this happens. So, 
they've got to be careful that they don't push the recreational punter over the edge where the, re- the recreational punter's losing 25%, 30% on turnover, loses interest in the sport, and then the whole thing falls over. So it's got to that point, I think. So uh, it's got to be very careful that they don't push it over the edge. Mm. Dan, Yeah, look, I think the taxing regime is too high at the moment. Well, it's not to say that we should go back to five years ago. I mean, it's you know the industry's got to evolve and fund itself and things like that. I think it's probably you know, a few percentage points in terms of market percentage too high, or let's say three percentage points or something. Mm. And the problem is, as King said, the recreational punter, I mean, when you look at it on a given day, you don't see any, any difference. But the reality is when the game's more expensive to play, people lose their money faster. Mm. They don't yep. stay engaged. And instead of... A person being able to to put a few hundred in their account and fund themselves for X amount of time, now they're finding you've got to top up more frequently and eventually they won't. Eventually they'll drop out. Um, so it is a very careful balancing point, um, especially as we enter an era we're in now where turnover is lower due to general economic conditions and a whole range of, of factors. I read an article that New South Wales are like the government or something, and one of their reports said they're like hundreds of millions of dollars short on forecasts. Mm. Um, revenue from mm. from pop tax, which directly relates to turnover. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's you know, what, what's the saying? Sort of, you know, kill the goose that laid mm. the golden egg, mm. sort of thing. I think the real danger of sort of doing that, uh, and no one wants you know to return back to the old days where um, you know it was a lot easier. But there just has to be a bit of a balance. Mm. Um, you know, whether that'll happen, who knows? I mean, you're you're more qualified to to speak to that, Rich. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's at a, in a very precarious position, I'd say, the mm. industry in terms of um, mm. yeah, recreational punters for sure. To move things along, Dream Team, you're probably, you probably run racing Twitter. Some people might <laughs> have an issue with that. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> what, what's the temperature like amongst, you know, generally speaking, racing Twitter is full of sort of semi-sophisticated punters. Yeah, for yeah. sure. They love for it. Sure. What's the feeling like amongst the punting fraternity about how punters are being treated in the marketplace at the moment? Oh, they're disgruntled for sure. Um, it's, it's it is a little bit unfair. Like a lot of the, I mean, the bookies they they have teams of employees just profiling and profiling people and making it harder for anyone that shows ability to make money off that bookie. So um, yeah, there's a lot of people angry. Like these sophisticated guys who are on Twitter and voicing, they're the ones that they're trying to sort of expand their punting bank, but they keep getting, I want to take $6 that bookie, but they'll only let me on to win a thousand or something like that. They want to bet bigger, but you know, they can only get, take their $6 at two bookies. So they're all a bit angry about that. And it is um, unfair to a degree. And there's, there are obviously to a broader topic, there are some bookies that are being a bit cheeky, like, I mean, a couple of, like a leader like Sportsbet, they let most smart people get on to win a thousand, regardless of the minimum bet laws. Mm. When they're these, you get new players that come in, they just they operate like robots. So they only bet where they have to bet. So that's the sort of area where we're at with that sophisticated market. There are guys that love it; they want to bet more, but they're sort of not allowed to at all places. Mm. And that's sort of like an interesting place where all the pras need to really think about are they operate operating a a, pro, a product that is fair and ethical mm. i think we're just we're just pushing the bookies are just pushing past the ethical line a little bit but they are getting taxed a lot as well so mm. um that's the feeling out there kings you're a huge player in the market you've been a player for a long time do you feel that you get looked after fairly enough by the people who can make decisions and make a difference, which would be the principal racing authorities? As a whole, yeah. There's a, there's a small group of bookmakers that are, uh, particularly from Melbourne on course bookmakers, that have made it very difficult. Um, and I've had quite a few accounts shut down lately and a decision has been pending on those accounts for quite a long time. But everyone's sort of... Uh, it's a changing time and there's a lot of legal issues and there's all these things being brought up, uh, whether it be automation and, 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 and limits. And um, I think everybody's doing their best. I think it's very hard. I mm. think that we need some strong leadership mm. to come in and pull the small minority of bookmakers back into line that are being unfair because 
Now there's, I don't know how many are out there, let's call it 150 or 130, 140. Probably there's only about 10% that make it difficult from mm. what I can see, maybe 15%. And I think though that those bookies in particular need to be brought into line with strong leadership. And I think that they are, um, it's a blight on the industry for the other 85% of the bookies that are doing the right thing as well. So... Um, yeah, everyone's just doing their best, but we decisions need to be made a lot quicker than what mm. they are. Mm. Yeah, and so I, I can certainly speak to that. Like we're in a great position that the federal government have said, okay, we're going to take over, and that's purely because of everyone who backed me up. We've campaigned so long and so hard, and we basically hijacked that government inquiry in April, mm. and our argument was undeniable. And the you know we're one step away from having the best regulated market in the world. No one, no other gambling market will come even close to us. My disappointment is since the government announced that they want to bring in a national minimum bet limit and also a national regulator, I haven't seen any strong leadership or, or dialogue from any, any of the PRAs mm. saying this is great for punters, we're going to support it. No yeah. one's contacted me. I think the I, only thing I've seen is um, Ladbrokes, uh, sorry, the CEO of... Um, Queensland, what's his... Uh, Jason Scott. Yeah, yep. Jason Scott, former yep. Ladbrokes. Yep. He seems a bit on the front foot with that. Yeah, and I should I should mm. correct myself there. He actually mm. did contact me and yeah. I, had, I had a good conversation with him. I had a good conversation with... The, he gets it, I think, yeah. yeah he's a, a punter he's, he's a punter himself and he understands. Mm. Do the PRAs want one body? Yeah, well, I, so I've, I've been... I'm slowly getting my way mm. in the door to talk to them um, and just, that will be really interesting. Just a bit frustrating to what Kingsley said, like, you want to have, you know, a hundred dollars on something at elevens, and it, it takes a four-month inquiry, yep. and the PRA is like waiting for the lawyers to come. We're talking about a hundred-dollar bet, mm. and why? Why aren't the PRAs on it? We're the customer. Mm. Why aren't the PRAs saying, "Bookie, prove it right now on the spot"? Why was that bet not it's just not legitimate? Just, yeah. It should be a twenty. It should be like like, like in the yeah, like when twenty four hours to resolve. Yeah. Yeah. The stewards yeah. say right. They try and, and sort the it out before the next race. Yeah. Make, if it's a real big Barney, they'll go come yeah. after the last, and then they give you give everyone twenty minutes, and then they go yeah. make a decision. You move on. That's right. I think that's the problem because all the PRA the bookies have to meet with the PRAs and become sort of like matey and get to know them to get their license. So they automatically mm. have an advantage. Mm. Um, over the customer, you have to remember that punters are the customer, and they're not punters aren't getting consulted by PRAs on decision making. They're not on any boards, whether it's a serious punter or a, or a pro punter or a, a mug. Like they're not on any of the big boards out there uh, making decisions on horse racing. So um, the industry I've worked in rugby league and other sports, and it's just the way that the industry doesn't consult its customers is just crazy. Mm. The other thing as well is that we're unique in our industry that bookmakers or prov wagering providers mm. are very much driving the demand for wagering through their advertising, yes. through their promotions yep. and bonuses, and PRAs mm. know that. Mm. So mm. there's kind of an implied um, thing there that it's Loyalty in the PRA's man. interest to to keep the, Them sweet, the wagering yeah. providers on side because we've seen examples before where um, – the, the providers have taken a set against a particular state almost in protest for sort of certain decisions and it's had a huge effect on their turnover. So no PRA mm. wants that. Mm. Um, so I think that's a big problem. Um, but, yeah, I mean, bookmakers are acting in their commercial interests as they're entitled to do. They're running businesses. Punters, we're acting in our commercial interests. We're all personally acting in our own self-interest. But I also think we do a pretty good job, especially you, Rich, at taking a balanced approach to what's mm. good for the entire industry. Mm. We're all genuinely concerned and interested in that and it's really up to the PRAs the national regulator however it works to manage both of those and achieve mm. a balance like a balanced landscape um, mm. at the moment that's probably not the case mm. even though it is better with bet limits and things like that than it has been in the past um, but I think there's an opportunity for one or more PRAs to come out and say we are going to be customer focused punter focused and sort of balanced it and attract some attention from that and, mm. and maybe mm. You know, encourage people to say, "Come bet on Queensland racing or Victoria yeah, racing because well, uh, we'll get you the best deal." I think, where, you know, yeah, RV have done some deals with Betfair, and I think yeah. that's you've noticed um, the Betfair numbers in Victoria are much stronger than they are in New South Wales because of that. So mm. it does work. So um, mm. hopefully, there's more of it. Yeah. So, and I'm sure people are interested in watching this. So, where I see things going. So, I had a mate who went and had a, a meeting with a federal MP about the inquiry's recommendations. 
the federal MP said that everything has been kicked down the road till after the voice. The voice, the referendum on the voice is on Everest Day. I'm surprised PVL didn't blow up that it got put on Everest Day. <laughs> You'd but think he could change it, wouldn't you? He probably could. Yeah. <laughs> so apparently once um, that's out of the way, the government will, you know, obviously the government got hundreds and hundreds of things they look mm. on a daily basis, but they will then turn their at- attention to things like that, you know, yeah. the, the inquiry. And I would also, it sort of ties in with the, s- the spring carnival starting to slowly peter down. Mm-hmm. And I'll be like a bull at the gates with the mm. regulators and the government saying, you said you were going to talk to punters. Oh, it doesn't have to be me, but so far, no one's, you know, no one I've known yeah. has contacted me. Yep. And um, and if, it, if it's not me, it needs to be somebody else. Mm-hmm. But we've got to get in that room, and you know, we're so close to, to having everything that we've wanted, which is nothing more than what is fair. Yeah. As a consumer, what you deserve. So, so that's where it's at. And I hope that when we're sitting here this time next year, that there's a national minimum bet limit and there's a national regulator. And I don't see any reason why not. You know, the might and power of the Australian government can make it happen. Mm. Let's hope. Let's hope it happens quickly, and it just doesn't drag on and on and on. Mm. So the term mind power. Let's have some fun now to finish off. Yep. I want to know your guys' favorite horse of all time, okay. firstly, and then favorite jockey. I'll start with you, Dream Team. Favorite yeah. horse of all time, and why? Probably Sunline. Yeah. When I was coming through the grades as a punter, um, just the way that she could accelerate and put a margin on horses. Mm-hmm. Um, you uh, just sort of captivate, captivated my attention and mm-hmm. um, the way Greg Childs would just sit on it and not move is um, you just don't see that very often. Like even mm-hmm. Winks, um, not a big margin horse. Horses that win by big margins like that Cox Plate win that Sunlight did just um, really just as a fan, I just loved mm-hmm. it. And, um, and Northerly, it was the other horse when I was coming through was a good horse and just the way it was – so different to sunlight winning ugly and mm. fighting and looking gone like um mm. they're my two favorites just because they captured my um attention and mm. yeah this they had personality in their racing style mm. so um that was that jockey never really nailed a jockey probably Corey brown when i was well, he was really good when i was started out so i think i was at ramick one day he rode four or five winners so mm-hmm. um yeah probably Corey. awesome dan oh Favourite horse, Might and Power. It's a big horse. Um, Yeah, look, um, just a few years before what Matt was talking about there, but I got interested in racing sort of 95, 96. I was sort of blessed to come in, you know, at the height of octagonal, saintly, nothing like a day in that sort of era. Um, Mm. Shortly after that, we went to sort of Might and Power. Um, The day he won the Caulfield Cup, I was just like, wow, just loved the horse ever since and he turned out to be a champion. Um, And, yeah, to this day, I've just always had a... Soft spot whenever I think about favourite horses, he's the you know, he's the one. Um, jockeys, I've never really had a favourite jockey like Matt. I'm, I'm far too objective for that. <laughs> yeah. It's more like who do I make most money out of. But in terms of admiring jockeys, um, probably Beedman um, yeah. when he was at the height of his power. I mean, James McDonald's probably the only jockey that's, you know, risen to that level in terms of matching him. Um, but like Beedman's effect on the market and then he would still live up to that was incredible. He'd get on these things... I think I've said this before. I've even said it last year. You know, Canterbury on a Wednesday that should be ten dollars, and they go around four dollars, three dollars fifty, and win because they got beaten mm, on them. Yeah. It's just mm. a freak. So, um, yeah, he's the jockey I probably admire most in my time of racing. But yeah, I don't have a, a sentimental favourite as such. They they can be uh, heroes or villains to me, depending on their last few rides. Great, great stuff. King Zone. Black caviar for me. Yeah, the champ, yeah, undefeated. Every start, didn't you? Pretty much, yeah. She yeah. just always, always fitted the profile. Basically, it was like it was free money. Yeah, just, <laughs> she just put it on, hundred, two hundred. Biggest bet I've ever had Even on a horse was on Black. But yeah, UK. <laughs> Biggest bet I've ever had was on her um, yeah. down the straight at Flemington one day. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she was, she was, she was exceptional. Uh, jockey Jimmy Cassidy. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Ring ding ding. Yep. Pumper. Just um, such. So aggressive and such so confident in his rides and just take a horse if the tempo was slow, pump straight to the front, stack him up or kick clear. He wasn't afraid to go lead by 10 lengths on Might and Power or whoever he was on. So mm. he was my favourite. Nash nowadays, I love backing Nash. Nash is back in a big yeah. way, isn't yeah. it? Profit-wise for a jockey, Nash has been super, super consistent for decades. Amazing longevity, Nash. Mm. Well, it does. Interesting how four horses we mentioned um, – they all had like decent. They weren't colts. They got retired after ten starts, which is what racing needs to 
really be mindful superstars. of like superstars are what brings people into the sport. So with this um, overbalance where the breeding industry is taking over, I know there's no studies on it yet, but that's another thing that's going to affect um, racing fans coming through the grades, I reckon, like losing superstars. and mm. So, yeah, it's always the the mares now that seem to be flying the flag, like the winxes of the world and mm. a couple of – we need those – tough like even Lonro wait race for a long time those mm. horses would have been off to start at for 10 sure. or 12 starts back in the mm. day mm. 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 all right All-set. boys time to finish up yeah well thank you very much mm. everyone out there appreciates how candid and open you were and um that's about it see you in another 12 months see you in another 12 months <laughs> up the den thank you very much for watching